All right, brothers and sisters, if you will come on in and take your seats, we'll go ahead and get started this morning. And let's open up with a word of prayer. I ask you to please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that this day you have made and you've made for man for us to rest and find rest in you and be nourished and ministered to by your word and to be encouraged by the fellowship of the saints gathered here in your name. Father, as we spend some time in your word in Judges 17 and 18 this morning, we pray that you would be preparing our hearts to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that you would teach us about yourself, who you are, and what you would require of us. Father, we ask these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so we are in Judges 17. And you can go ahead and turn there if you like. But for the last few weeks, we have been finishing up Samson. We've been looking at Samson for a number of weeks because the author of Judges has chosen to camp out there. And the pattern that we've been seeing is that there's been longer and longer sections and the stories have had more and more explanation of details because the judges are getting more and more wicked. The pattern of judges is that each man has been doing whatever is right in his own eyes. And as that happens, we get more and more details. And why is that? It's because sin is messy. And we get more details because the further along Israel goes down the path of sin, the more complicated things become. But this morning, we have a definite break in the pattern. We have been trucking our way through the biggest section of Judges, Judges 3 through 16, and the book of Judges can be divided up into three major sections. The first is the two, first two chapters of Judges. This is the prologue. This is where we get the pattern. Judah is the tribe that's supposed to go up and finish conquering the land of Israel. But they failed. They did not conquer all the land. They did not gather their brothers with them to fight against the Canaanites. Or rather, they left lands unconquered. They left idols undestroyed. And even they worshiped these idols themselves. And because of their sin, the pattern is the Lord has been giving them over to oppressors. These oppressors afflict them for a number of years. And then God raises up a judge to deliver them. Well, the second section is the largest section in the book, Judges chapter 3 through 16. This is the pattern of history. We've had small judges like Shamgar, Toza, Tola, and Isban. We've had big judges, big name judges that we can remember, Barak, Gideon, and Samson. And each of these judges, for each of these judges, there's been an enemy coming against Israel. Some of them have been foreign, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines. And sometimes even Israel has oppressed itself as tribe comes against tribe and brother against brother. But now we come to the last section. Judges 17 through 21, the end, of, the end of the book. In section 3, we have a shift in our pattern. Before, the author of Judges was very theological in the way he wrote. And by that I mean he was giving theological commentary along the way. For instance, he might say, this action displeased the Lord. It was evil in his sight. Or, this event happened because the Lord made it happen. He desired it to be so. The author of Judges is very conscious of the fact that Israel is living their lives before the watching eyes of the Lord. They're supposed to be living in the land before a holy God, before the tabernacle of God, and they're supposed to be a holy people in a holy land. But they're not holy, as we've seen. And so the pattern has begun with Israel's sin. Israel's sin has displeased God, and he would send oppressors, and the pattern goes on. But now, in Judges 17, there's a break in the pattern. There's no more familiarity. There are no more judges to speak of. There's no more foreign oppressors. There are no more peace, periods of peace. There are no more statements summarizing the faithfulness or lack of faithfulness of any judges. 
there's only record of failures. And there are two major failures in this last section. There's religious failure, as Israel's worshiping idols. And then there's moral failure, and we'll look look at that in the weeks to come. But right here in Judges 17, as we dive in, there's a break in the pattern. And that's, that is, there's a theological break uh, in the pattern. We're left in a desolate place. Uh, we come to almost bare history without any commentary from the Lord. Uh, it's like when you're, when you're a kid and your mom stops speaking and just looks at you. And the looking is, is worse than any scolding. Uh, the silence is deafening. It was terrifying. <laughs> and almost uh, it's almost as if the, the author of Judges is laying this history before his readers and saying, you just have to look for yourselves. I don't need to tell you how bad things are. I just give you the details. If, if I told you that planes were hijacked and, and I showed you footage of them flying into skyscrapers in New York, I don't need to tell you there's a national emergency. The author of Judges doesn't have to tell us in these last five chapters He doesn't have to tell us that Israel is in a bad place spiritually. But there are hints in the way he's writing. There are hints along the way that the author of Judges is deeply disgusted with Israel, with the people of God. And we'll we'll be picking up on a few of those things. But remember at this point that the book of Judges, the point is to show us that history is theological. All events in in this book are pointing to us to the fact that God in heaven is sovereign. So as we go through this section today... We'll be looking for these allusions to the sovereignty of God. And let's keep in mind, with this, as we read this section, we come to a long passage of Scripture this morning. We'll be looking at two chapters. Uh, but it'll be clear that they're one unit. It's a long story, but they're meant to be read together. But before we read this, let me just say that this passage is very messy. It's hard to read and hard to teach. And that's on purpose. We're supposed to be turned off by sin disgusted by the messiness of this account. Now, I'm not going to read the whole two chapters in one go. We're going to read each section as we come to it. But I ask you to look at your Bibles and read along as I read to us the Word of God in Judges 17, beginning in verse 1. There was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoken in my ears, behold, The silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make graven image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So he restored the money to his mother. His mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made a graved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod and the household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the reading of God's word to this point. So the first thing we notice right off the bat is that there is no oppressor in Israel. And that's a good thing, right? Wrong. When God disciplines his children, it looks like sending trials, sending hard knocks against the foolishness of his children. The oppressors, these foreign oppressors that we've been reading about, are actually a sign of God's favor and his love. They're a sign that God has not cut off his people, but he's bringing them back to himself. 
They're a sign of God's covenant faithfulness. And they were promised. These foreign oppressors were actually promised to Israel for their disobedience in Deuteronomy 28. The Lord promised that when Israel was unfaithful, he would send oppressors, plagues against them to call them back to himself. But here, again, there's silence. There's no plagues, no oppressors. And that's even worse for Israel. We'd rather read about the judges and all the messiness in their lives. But right here, we see the Lord is giving Israel over to their sin. And he's allowing the Israelites to have what they want. They wanted other gods like the Egyptians, Canaanites, the Philistines. And now God's giving them over. This is a terrifying place to be. And that's where we enter into in verse 1 of chapter 17. There's an interaction here between a mother and his son. We're in the hill country of Ephraim, and that's in the north of Israel. And surprise, surprise, not much good goes on up north. But there is this money, and it's a good chunk of change at that. It's 1,100 pieces of silver. And this woman, because it was taken from her, has put a curse on it. It's interesting. But all is well, because her son has returned it to her. He's gone and taken it back. And look with me at verse 2. He says, I took it. Now, given the context, this sounds an awful like a sinful taking and an eating of the heart, a sinful, sinful disposition, especially given what they're planning to do with the money. But regardless of how he took the money, which is unimportant because the author doesn't give it to us, we think, I think it's crucial for us to note that the name of the Lord is used here. But Yahweh is used a number of times throughout our passage. But it's never used by the author of Judges himself. It's always on the, in the mouths of these characters. And they're taking it in vain. Maybe it should remind us of Isaiah 29, or Matthew 15, where the Lord says, This people honors me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. Well, how do we know that the hearts of this mother and son are far from the Lord? Well, look again at verse 3. The woman says, I dedicate this silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a graven image and a metal uh, image. <laughs> this just went from okay to bad to worse. And it's not wrong to dedicate things to the Lord. In Leviticus 7 and 22, the Lord gives specific instructions. He says, you can do this, but this is the way you are to dedicate things to me. And even the Gentile nations dedicate huge gifts to the building of the temple. But when this woman says she's dedicating this gift to the Lord, she then goes and gives it to her son. And her son's not a Levite. She cannot say that you're giving a gift to the Lord and then not give it to his tabernacle, to the dwelling place of God the way God specifically has instructed his people to do. This man is not a Levite. He does not serve in the tabernacle. He's not serving, uh, he's not sacrificing before the Lord to make atonement for sins. This gift is not going to the Lord. But it gets worse. This gift is given for the specific purpose of making a graven image, a molten image. We go from bad to worse. This is a clear, clear violation of the second commandment. What is Israel not to do? Well, they can have no other gods before the one true God, and they cannot make any graven, carved, or molten images to worship God, worship as God, or worship through, uh, worship God through these idols. See, the sin of idolatry is so wrong, is so egregious, because it says God, the Creator, can be worshipped through a creature. It robs God of glory. It says the infinite is finite. It can be contained in this inanimate wood or metal. And every idol is fashioned by human hands, sinful hands. It's tainted with sin. 
And every representation of the divine is not divine because we're the ones who make it. And so we're reminded of Exodus 32. And have you ever read those warning labels uh, somewhere and thought, that is so obscure, someone must have done that in order for that rule to be written? Well, the people have tried to worship God through idols before. While Moses was still on Mount Sinai receiving the law, the people demanded that Aaron make them gods. And so Aaron made them the golden calf and said, These are your gods that brought you out of Israel. They are, in effect, trying to worship Yahweh, the true God, through a piece of metal. And they're dedicating their precious metals to this carved image to worship the God of Abraham. God is far, far from pleased. The anger of God burns and threatens to wipe them all out, and 3,000 people have to be killed before the anger of the Lord is abated. And even then, the Lord threatens not to go with Israel as they go on. This is how seriously the Lord takes idolatry. And all these warnings are here for Israel. They should have known. But here we are, already three verses into Judges 17, and we're already deep into sin. The son takes this this money and makes these images, and the idols are made, and there's a whole gallery. There's a whole gallery of idols. Israel has now become a house of idols rather than the house of God. And to cap this off, Micah ordains one of his own sons, not a Levite, to be a priest for himself. Again, you cannot do this. An Israelite cannot just choose whoever he wants to serve before the Lord or even to serve other God. But Micah does it anyway. And we get this statement in verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. And what, what the author is telling us is that if there was a king, then all this mess would not be happening. What the situation needs is a Deuteronomy 17 king, a king who has the law inscribed on his heart because he's made a copy with his own hand. The king would come and judge over these evildoers and cut them off from the, from the congregation. This king would make righteous judgments to keep the people of God pure before a holy God. So Israel needs a great king, a king who reigns in righteousness. But there is no king. And that's why everyone is doing whatever is right in their own eyes. But more on that a bit later. Let's continue to read uh, in chapter uh, chapter 17, verse 7. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he sojourned, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said, to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his son, his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, the young, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. This ends the reading of God's word to this section. Now, this situation is even worse. The Levites are the tribe singled out not to have a physical possession in the land. So this Levite in verse 8 is in the wrong because he's looking for a place. He's looking for a possession. The Levites are singled out to have the responsibility of serving the Lord. That is their inheritance. And so when this priest is looking for a place, he's rejecting his inheritance and going after what 
his heart desires. Okay, so we can say the situation is bad because we don't have a king, right? But the next best thing would be a Levite because they know the law. So they should come to the Ephraimites here and they are supposed to lay down the law because they know it. We need a firm rebuke from the law of God. We need repentance and going to the tabernacle to sacrifice for sin. We need to burn their idols and repent in sackcloth and ashes. But that's not what we see. We see in verses 7 and 8, not only no law, but lawlessness. In verses 7, 8, and 9, we see this Levite staying here, not to help with tabernacle service, but because he's become discontent, comes here and he helps in idolatry. And in verse 10, we see Micah, he has a job proposal. And it is basically, come to my house and minister before me and I will give you a comfortable life. Clothes, food, and money. And you can minister before these metal things. Now, this job sounds like a great proposition for a young man who has no prospects. So the Levite, he sees, he desires, he takes and eats, as it were. And what's the problem here? Why is it wrong for Micah to have a private priest? Well, other than the fact that it looks and smells like a cult, it is not the worship that God has commanded. It's not how he said, you must come before me. But that that's never enough for us, is it? In the West, in the age of reason, we want more. We want reasons. We want to understand why. If we're going to get on board with it, we have to get behind it intellectually. Well, surely this guy, Micah, why shouldn't he have the freedom to do whatever he wants behind closed doors, behind the privacy of his own home? Well, it's because he's leading his family and even this Levite into sin. God is holy and he commands his people to be holy. Leviticus 9, uh, 19, 12, 19, 2. It matters what this one man in the hill country of Ephraim is doing because his sin is affecting the whole congregation. It matters because he should be cut off from his people for doing this. Otherwise, the whole people of Israel are sinful, are tainted before the Lord. It's like in Joshua chapter 7 when Israel is defeated by Ai before their enemies because of one man's sin, the sin of Achan. Achan took a cloak and 200 pieces of silver and a bar of gold and because of his sin, one man, 36 other men die, and the people are defeated in humiliation. Well, in the same way, Micah's household is staining all of Israel, and they are a stench before the Lord's eyes. Furthermore, this sin is put on record for us, for all of history. All of God's people read this passage of Scripture and see his sin, and it's abysmal. And we come to verse 13 of chapter 17, and I want to point this out to us this morning. Sometimes the providence of life and the providence of God and sovereign and his sovereign plan, the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. Right here is an example of the wicked prospering. Micah says, I am in favor of the Lord because, look, I have this Levite. And again, this man is honoring God with his mouth, but his heart is far from God. And we're reminded of, of Psalm 73 where King Asaph is bewildered. He's bewildered at the wicked prospering and all their sin. And he describes them as those people who have no pangs until death, that they are not in trouble like others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And pride is their necklace and violence is their garment. These people have turned their back on God. They say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. These are the wicked. If Micah really cared about serving the Lord, he would be worshiping God as God commanded. 
We'd be listening to God's instructions and meditating on the law of God. But instead, Micah is drunk on his own success. He's filled up with his own achievements. He sees this Levite and he treats him like a lucky rabbit's foot. He says, look, God is being good to me because I have this one man. Never mind the fact that he's in sin. Well, if we enjoy success and comfort in life, then we need to be careful that we are not taking this as a superstitious sign that God is pleased with us. We can never grow comfortable with our sin just because we are not being afflicted for it by some obvious trial. We have to be wary of sin even in our comfort, even in our blessedness. But Micah's not wary, and so we read on about the effects of his sin in chapter 18. So let's turn there and see the effects of Micah's idolatry in chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five men, five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? And what are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah has dealt with me. He hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. This is the reading of God's word to this section. Now, just one quick comment on chapter 18. It's kind of hard to break it up because it's a long, sad tale of greed, sin, and depravity. But there are sort of three movements as we move through chapter 18. And they follow the pattern of sin, of seeing, desiring, taking, and eating, or consuming, devouring. Well, the Danites, they come, they see the idols of Micah, they desire the idols of Micah, and they take the idols of Micah. And so, looking back at chap- looking at, we should look at chapters 17 and 18 together, because we see that there's sin, the sin of this one man minding his own business, but his sin is really affecting an entire tribe and leading them into sin. As we look forward into Israel's history, it leads the whole nation into sin. Sin is always begetting sin, and that's what we see right here. But the first sin we see in verse 1 of chapter 18, right from the start we notice that there's something wrong. Again, there's no king in Israel, but we see the ramifications of the lack of God's law. Because there is no king in Israel, Israel has not been led into battle, and the promised land is not fully conquered. There are still wicked Canaanites in the land practicing child sacrifice and honoring the dead and all sorts of sexual perversion and idolatry. Therefore, Dan, this entire tribe, does not even have a place to call home. They were supposed to have their own possession for forever in the land, but they're aimlessly wandering around because they failed to obey the command of the Lord. Why is this a sin? Remember back with me to Judges chapter 1 and 2. After the death of Joshua... The tribes inquired of the Lord, who is to lead us? And they said, Judah, God said, Judah will lead you. But Judah did not gather the tribes to finish the campaign. They failed to obey, and they failed to take the land. And their sin is now staying with us through this entire book. 
this one sin at the beginning has had massive ramifications. Now they've gotten a place, they've gotten to a place where Israel should have had a home. By this point, Israel should have been, they should have been taking from vineyards that they did not plant and dwelling in houses they did not build and eating and drinking the milk and honey of the land. But there's no king in Israel. And so they are sinfully wandering in verse 1. But then in verse 2, we see spies. Dan sends five able men out to spy out the land in front of them. And we can remember back when Israel first approached the land of Canaan, they also sent spies to bring back a report. They were gathering intelligence on their enemies so they could make an informed attack. But here we see Dan making battle plans against their own kinsmen. They're sending spies against Ephraim, their brothers. The spies, and it's like the spies that go into Jericho, they even stay with the house in the house of their enemy, unsuspected. And somehow we see that they know this young man, the Levite. They know that the Levites are not supposed to be in Ephraim because they do not have a possession there. And so they ask, verse 3, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? These spies are confused, and rightly so. Any faithful Israelite would be confused at reading this. Everything's out of place. There's no order. There's no decency. This man's house is a head-scratcher. But the Levites... The Levite answers the spies in verse 4. He gives them a quick summary of how Micah has dealt with him, and he tells them he's a cultic priest. Maybe he even gave them a business card. Levite for hire to the highest bidder, sinfully ministering to idols in all the wrong places. And when the spies hear this history, they, they don't even bat an eye. They don't raise any objections to Micah's idolatry. They're certainly not concerned that their brother is in sin and committing gross immorality, sinning before God. They don't even try to warn him. They could care less. And we actually see the opposite in verse 5. We see that the spies, they treat the Levite like a horoscope. They say, read the signs for us. Twist a forecast out of God. Get us a prediction. Will we get what we want? Verse 5, will we prosper on our journey? They obviously do not tell the Levite that they're planning on raiding the surrounding areas. They just cryptically ask if they're going to be successful in this general venture. Well, the Levite comes back with a yes, and the spies are happy. But notice the Levite doesn't say that the Lord is pleased with the Danites' plan. The Levite ominously says that the eyes of the Lord are on them. But the Danites hear what they want to hear. They will proceed according to their plan and not according to the word of the Lord. And how many times have we seen this? The wicked are always claiming that God is on me, on my side. He's told me to do this. I am acting according to the word of the Lord. The Muslims the Mormons, and many other groups of people have acted, uh, justified their actions by saying, I'm blessed by God to do whatever my heart desires. But how do we know that the Muslims, the Mormons, are wrong, or even Micah and Dan here? Well, the only ground that we have to stand on is the Scripture. We have to be good Bereans and good Berean Christians. We have to be reading the Scriptures to know that this is wrong. Just on Wednesday night, Pastor David led us to consider Psalm 111. And in verse 2, it describes the people of God as being those who diligently pour over, study the good and mighty works of God. That's the only way we will know that these wicked people are acting in error. And that's the only leg we would have to stand on. Otherwise, it's just their word against ours. Well, there are so many covenant violations here, so much sin. (laughs) Nothing's good is going to come from this opening in chapter 18. There's just more trouble to be seen. And so we pick back up with that in verse 7. 
chapter 18, so please read with me. This is a bit of a longer section. Then the five men departed and came to Laish, and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security, and the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth, and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians, and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtael, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise, and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter, and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So six hundred men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtael, and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that the place, on this account, that place is called Menahan Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim, and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to, out to scout the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there is an ephod, household gods, and a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the six hundred men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone out, who'd gone to scout out the land, went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the six hundred armed, six hundred men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, "What are you doing?" And they said to him, "Keep quiet." Put your hand on your mouth and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest of, to the house of one man, or to be priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. And this ends the reading of God's word for this section. The first thing we see in this complicated mess is that the spies return in verse 7 with their report. They have completed their mission and they return to their kinsmen and they bring good news of a sort. They said, this will be a cinch. Leish is a city that is isolated, it's unprotected, and has full of resources. It's ripe for the plucking. It's a perfect target for us to take over. So in verse 9, the spies sound the attack. They say, up, let us go and take this prize. And they sort of goad their kinsmen on into it. Notice they say, almost mockingly, will you do nothing? It's right here for the taking. They're acting kind of like a gang, whooping each other up to do violence against someone smaller, weaker, and defenseless. So in verse 11, 600 men of Dan go up to capture the city. And on the way, they go by the house of Micah, as we see in verse 13. And the five men tell the company, Hey, hey, there's idols, there's precious metals in this house of Micah. And, oh, by the way, they have a Levite with them to boot. And again, we see a sort of goading language to get the Danites to come up together to turn aside to loot and plunder. 
in verses 16 and 17, we see a little craftiness in the positioning of troops outside the gate, leaving some by the gate, uh, first going up to present a more, more friendly face. But then the five men go in and take what their hearts desire. They take the idols, the ephod, the household gods, and then they bribe the Levite with a better offer. They uh, make him an offer they can't, he can't refuse. They say in verse 19, Do you want to stay here in this podunk town, one-horse town, and serve one guy? Or do you want to come serve a whole tribe? Well, who can resist an offer like this? Fame, fortune, and especially an offer at the point of a spear. And so in verse 20, the priest's heart was glad. This is a promotion. He's, he, so he aids and abets the Danites in their theft. And then the plot thickens and as the betrayer betray, is betrayed, as the idolater is looted. What a mess. And we see we're supposed to come away with, with this passage with an awful taste in our mouth. Everything is going everywhere, and there's no, there's no honor. There's no decency. Well, the Danites act like Julius Caesar. They came, they saw, and they took what was not theirs when nobody was home. And now a faithful Israelite might be expecting the Danites to take away these idols, to take them to the garbage dump and burn them and destroy them with fire utterly. But as it turns out, they want the idols for themselves, for their own trophy hall. And having done what they came to do, we read on in verse 21. And here's where the irony gets cranked up to a 10. Uh, 18, uh, Judges 18, 21. This is the word of God. So they, that is the Danites, turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you, that you come out, that you come with such a company? He said to them, You have taken my gods, and that I made, and the priest, and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me, What is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life through the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverance, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel, but the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests of the tribe of Danite of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Since the reading of God's word for this section. Alright, in verse twenty one we see the Danites making their preparations to set out from Micah's place as if nothing had happened. We just stopped in for a visit, and now we're going to go on our way. But the community neighborhood watch raises the alarm, and the, bell, the, the bells sound. Everyone is alerted. There's been a theft, and the Danites are making off with the gods of Micah. And it's interesting that 
the neighbors would make such a fuss because repeatedly they called Micah's gods because Micah made them. So perhaps we can surmise that Micah has been leading all the people around him in his idolatry. He's been a cult leader. Well, Micah gathers up his posse and they catch up with the Danites. And the Danites accusingly say, why have you come out like this? Why have you come out in force against us? And Micah loses it in verse 24. He says, you took my gods that I made and the priest. What have I left? Why do you ask me? What is the matter with you? He's distraught. And okay, here's, here's the irony. Micah is having to go after his gods. You should never worship a god that can be stolen, period. You should never worship a god that's going to up and leave you high and dry. And Micah admits that he himself, with his hands, is the creator of these gods. You should never worship gods that you yourself make. Reason dictates that these idols are the creatures of Micah, and they should be worshiping Micah. But Micah uses this fact that he made these gods as a reason why the Danites should return them to him. They stole them. This is so backwards. This is how the wicked reason. But then notice that Micah says, oh, you also stole my priest. But who does the priest belong to? The priests belong to the Lord. The Lord established the priesthood. The Lord provides the food for the priest out of the sacrificial animals. The Lord is the portion, the inheritance of Levites. So you, you cannot own a Levite. Now, we serve a God who does not slumber or sleep. He ever watches over his children. We serve the sovereign creator who made all things and sustains all things by the word of his power. We serve a God who cannot be stolen from us. And when we wander, it's actually God who pursues us to bring us back. But Micah does not serve this God. He does not serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Micah might as well be a babbling child here with lack of reason, and he's throwing a tantrum. And the Danites, they treat him accordingly. They say, verse 24, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life and the lives of your household. Again, they make him an offer he can't refuse. They say, Be gone with you. We do not care about your complaint. If you speak with us again, you will be killed. And that's that. Micah cannot match the military might of Dan, and so he has to watch them ride off into the sunset with his stuff. And then in verse 27, the sad tale continues as the Danites sack the city of Laish, strike down all these people with the sword, and there's no deliverance for them. But then the Danites rebuild the city, and they name it Dan. Now, what do we know about this city, the city of Dan? Well, right off from the foundation of this city in verse 30, this city is full idols from the very foundation of this place. It's ripe with sin. And you remember our sermons from Kings and Chronicles. Where was it that Jeroboam set up his calf worship that ruined all of Israel spiritually? Well, in Judges, uh, first, excuse me, in 1 Kings chapter 12, after the kingdom was divided, Jeroboam set up calf worship in Shechem and in Dan. He also appointed priests who were not Levites to serve these idols. See, the wickedness just keeps trickling down through the generations of Israel. And the thing that we should take away from this is that the people, this is the people whom God is patient with. This is the people whom God redeemed from Israel, uh, from, from, from Egypt to be his holy people. This is the people whom God is slow to anger with, 
and kind and abounding in steadfast love. What a God. But look with me, look with me at verse 31, and, and we'll end our uh, lesson with this. Even though this, there's a spiritual wreck in Israel, even though there's a spiritual collapse, God's house is still there. God has not abandoned His people, even in the middle of all their sin. In this passage that we've just read, these two chapters are just chock full of all kinds of depravity, of all kinds of bickering and fighting among family. And we've not even covered everything that could be said, but we end with a comparison of the righteousness of God. The sin might be so bad, but the righteousness of God is, is there. And the world around us might look like Judges 17 and 18, and you might be hearing about idolatry, sexual immorality, and all kinds of greed, abuse, and corruption, even in the church, even in the people of God. But God still has His remnant here in verse 31. They are st there is still a house of the Lord. There is still right worship available. Even at the bottom rung of the spiral of evil and judges, He's continuing to be faithful, to be loving. So as we come into worship this morning, let's be reminded of just how sinful sin is. Our sin is not compared to other people's sin. Micah's sin is not compared to the Danite's sin. All of their sin is contrasted to the righteousness of God in the house of God in verse 31. So as we come into worship this morning, let's come humbly seeking God with contrite hearts uh, because He is the holy God of Israel uh, who bears with His people. Let's come with gratitude for His long-suffering. Uh, are there any questions over the lesson? Comments, statements of brilliance? Well, let's, let's close our time in prayer. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, we are amazed, we are struck dumb by the sinfulness of sin, even with this, in this passage, of how people who have your law, who have the, the very character of God uh, in Ten Commandments and in the sacrificial system and in the ceremonial, system, uh, ceremonial law, could turn away from you again and again. Uh, but even as we consider the sin of Israel and how they are prone to wander, uh, we ha cannot help but see ourselves, uh, see our own sin, our own shortcomings, our failings, even this past week. And we thank you that you have made a way for us to be cleansed, that you have given us a perfect sacrifice. You've given us a perfect imitation, a perfect imprint of who you are, of your character in the person of Christ. And it is in His name that we come to worship You this morning. Father, we do come with humility even over our sin, but we pray that You would be the lifter of our heads. Pray that you, we would look to Christ and that we would sing His praises and glory even as we come into worship now. We pray all these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.